keep hearing this music in my head. Yeah. Anyway, First Samuel, verses uh, chapter seven, verses one through two, picking up where we left off. And the men of Kiriath-Yerim came and took the ark of the Lord, and they brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark remained at Kiriath-Yerim, the time was long, for it was twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Cupic of the ark. Thank you. This is actually a very cool little sculpture thing that's in my office. Um, It's quite small, but it's a very good representation of the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top and the cherubim being carried on the poles as was uh, designated by the Lord of how it would be carried and everything else. And I just wanted to get that up there to make sure that remember that we are talking about this Ark, not Noah's Ark, which was vastly different. You can only get some very small animals and insects in this Ark, and you wouldn't want to sail it just so you know where we're at. I tried to get Harrison Ford to kind of make a cameo appearance with us, but he said, you know, I'd really love to come there, but I'm sorry, I've got a conflict. And I said, well, you know what, maybe next time. Yeah, you bet I did. So the Ark of the Covenant is returning to God's people. And the Ark returning to God's people, or I should say being returned to God's people, was emblematic of God himself returning to his people. For the Ark of the Covenant was the place where I mentioned about the mercy seat, where the, the, the manifest presence of God in the temple would come down and rest upon the mercy seat or above the mercy seat okay, in the cloud. And that is where he, again, metaphorically, I mean literally, but but, uh, metaphorically, theologically speaking, met with his people by his manifest presence. But as I read here, the ark isn't situated in the magnificent temple of the Lord. It's in Abinadab's hovel. Basically, it's in his own little residence. And so this makes the people of God have some kind of realization of how far that they had fallen and how the promises of God that he desired for them as an obedient people were far from being realized. And if you have ever been, or if you are perhaps even currently, I mean right now, right here this morning in this place, as you sit here, and you've been in that kind of a situation or you are in that situation, it's a sad place to be. Many years ago, probably over 30, an elderly gentleman who was not a friend or anything else, he was the father of a man that we knew, so he was just an acquaintance. I think it was the only time we ever met him. And we were talking, and he said something that stuck with me all these years. He said, regret and remorse are mighty uncomfortable bedfellows. And I didn't make it a point to remember that. But it has come up many times, and it came up as I was thinking through all of this. The ark is returned only because the hand of the Lord was bringing it about. But now here's the point that we want to key in on. That a symbolic return of the Lord to his people is a far cry from God abiding with his people as their king and as their Lord. 
the stipulations of the covenant which God made with his people were still intact. But those stipulations to the covenant and the promises required the allegiance of God's people beyond everything else. Simply having this hallowed piece of, uh, I was struggling with what to call it, of temple furniture in their midst would do nothing to improve their personal, their social, their civic, or their national well-being. Nothing. So let's remember that the ark was in its rightful place among the Jews at the very outset of this narrative. I mean, it all started out, it was with God's people, it was where it was supposed to be. And then there was wars and battles and the Philistines captured it and all of that, all the past weeks that we've been talking about here. But that, that is the ark being where it was supposed to be with God's people, didn't stop national devastation. All of which resulted in being taken, as I mentioned, to the, by the Philistines, nor did it bring about peace and prosperity for the Philistines. In fact, it brought them death and despair. So what's the common factor here between these two? Neither the Jews nor the Philistines were serving the king of the universe. Now, we don't expect the Philistines to be serving the king of the universe. They were pagan polytheists. They didn't make any pretense about being followers of Jehovah. But the children of God made the pretense all the time, all along, of being all in to their God, Jehovah. They had the rituals. They had the forms. They had the fanfare. They had the wardrobe. They had the sacerdotal officials. They had the calendar. They had the festivals. They had the offerings and they had the law. But without a relationship with the living God, you know what it is? It's all just religion. Do we remember what religion is? Religion is man's efforts to get to God. Christianity is God's effort to get to man. And there's an eternity difference between the two. When I was in the army or whether later on when I was in the workplace and somebody would say, oh, referring to me, oh, he's a very religious guy. I remember thinking, "Eh, I hope not. (laughs) Israel was very religious and they were no better off than the blatant idolaters of the pagan Philistines. People in every epoch don't need more religion. What they need is a relationship with the living God, and that comes only by grace through faith. And yet, even that is contingent on obedience. Wait, what? Oh, yeah. If you're new to this church and what you just heard is making you twitch, thinking, oh, man, I didn't realize I was walking into a bunch of legalists. A bunch of salvation by works addicts living under the constant threat of condemnation of guilt. That's not who we are. So please know that you're wrong. We are firmly firmly in tune with the various writings of the Apostle Paul, among others. 
namely Galatians 2.21, when he writes, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness, in fact, comes through the law, that means by works, then Christ died needlessly. Amen. We're firmly with Paul when he says to Titus, uh, yeah, when he writes to Titus saying, it's not by works of righteousness we have done, but according to his mercies he saved us. We are firmly with Paul when he addresses the church at Ephesus saying, it is in fact by grace that you have been saved through faith. And even that faith is not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anybody should boast. But there is every bit the same need for repentance today in the New Testament church as there was in the Old Testament. And I would, in fact, argue there is even a greater need. Now, why do I say that? Oh, because you're a pastor and you've got to say those kinds of things to kind of do the drive-by guilt things to try and motivate us to do things, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, <laughs> perhaps. But actually, no, there is a theological reason why I say there is a greater need for the church today to repent than even wayward Israel in the Old Testament. In Luke chapter 12, verse 48, Jesus says, from everyone who has been given much, much will be required, and to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. Now, let's remember to contrast New Testament, Old Testament. Remember what the writer of Hebrews, writing from the New Testament vantage point of the Old Testament, what he says about the Old Testament and the people of the Old Testament, God's people. He says that they had only the shadows of the good things to come and not the very form of things. But you see, we in the New Testament have not been given simply shadows and we've, we've not been given simply glimpses or words meaning promises about the one who is coming to redeem mankind. No. That's all they had in the New Testament. But what we have is we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father who is full of grace and truth, John 1.14, referring to the incarnation, to Messiah here, the Redeemer on earth, God in human flesh. And so again, back to my assertion that there's a greater need today for the church of Christ to repent than even those of the Old Testament because Peter says in 2.21, it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed down to them. Let that one sink in. And so the church is in dire need of repentance in so many ways for all of the manifold ways that it has turned from the commandments of God which is one reason why any theocracy, that means where God is head and rule as he was in the, in the Old Testament, why any theocracy that is established by man is doomed. So here's kind of a get a grip factor concerning the godless critics who 
enjoy protesting whenever outspoken, especially believers, get involved in government, particularly at the federal level. Now, this was much more prominent many years ago. Some of you won't even remember, but some of you will. The accusations that were going forth about believers entering office and everything else because, oh, well, you know what, they want to establish a theocracy in the United States. Couldn't have been further from the truth. And you're saying, I don't, I don't recall anything like that. Hello? Remember Jerry Falwell and the moral majority? That's exactly what the criticisms were. And after that, anybody who was running for any prominent position in politics, they had to throw that out there, boy. Oh, yeah, sure, you want to convert the whole country. Well, yeah, actually. But we're not going to do it by establishing a theocracy and making Christianity the religion for all. Christianity is not Islam. God says, whosoever will come. Not, you come or I cut your head off. No, world of difference. So for the record, the only theocracy that I want is when Jesus Christ himself comes and establishes his kingdom on earth. And that's coming. Because theocracy where man is involved, where man is a participant, is a disaster precisely because man is involved. We have thousands of years of history to show that. And we are reading how that theocracy turned out currently. So the nation of Israel, even under the rule of the king of heaven, was in bad shape. And so God raised up Samuel as the leader of his people. He raised him up as the leader in the civic areas, the military, the spiritual, and just leadership in general. And Samuel knows what's needed for wholesale national change. <laughs> national change. In verse 3, Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart... Now, he could stop right there. He really could. And you'll see why I say that in just a second. If you return to the Lord with all your heart and remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve Him alone, He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So let me now rephrase this in a way that reveals the repetitiveness of what the solution is to this wayward nation at this epoch. If you return to the Lord with all your heart, and you will serve the Lord with all your heart, you will serve the Lord with all your heart as you are serving the Lord with all your heart, since you have returned to the Lord with all your heart. That's why I said, as soon as he said, love your Lord your God with all your heart, he could stop there. Because if you are loving the Lord your God with all your heart, the serving and the everything else that he mentions there, and the specifics about here's what it means, you've got to remove the idols, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do that, that would all follow if the premise was true. Return to the Lord with all your heart. So the solution is what? Jesus said it 
in Mark 12, verse 30. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And he could have stopped there because that's all encompassing. But he goes on to elaborate, and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So at the risk of being annoyingly obvious, perhaps, in any era, in any epoch, in any form of governance, in any geographical locale, in any culture, what is the only solution to peace on earth, goodwill toward men? It is to return to the Lord who has revealed himself to all mankind with all your heart. And until and unless that happens, there will never, there will never be peace on earth. Only temporary breathers, perhaps, where God gives those striving to love him with all their heart a taste of the good things to come. The kind of world that all sane people long for will only ever come about as the world is dedicated to loving the Lord God Almighty. The primary symptom of Israel's woes in the present situation in 1 Samuel has been that another nation, namely the Philistines, has determined that the Jews were growing too powerful. And they needed to be stopped before they became so powerful that they would be able to conquer the Philistines. And so what do they do? They conduct a preemptive strike, which leads to a second strike, thereby decimating Israel's army. But instead of being bringing peace and tranquility to the Philistine nation, which is why they went to war, it brought them death and destruction by a God-induced plague. So let's, you know, take this from looking at it from our vantage point, just as mere humans and, say, secularists at the time, forget, you know, our Bible understanding and grid and all of that, just looking at this from the outside Here's what we see. We see one nation coming under attack by another nation and all that that means to the losing nation. But then the winning nation falls prey to a deadly plague. Go figure. It's just one of those fortunate or unfortunate lose-lose historical situations. Looking on from the outside, it looks pretty routine like just your normal kind of everyday, unfortunately, national squabbles where two nations are protecting their turf, turf and lifestyle. Nothing more and nothing less. But you see, we have the advantage, or at least we are supposed to have the advantage of being able to see life and to see the circumstances of life globally and up close and personal through the lens of our all-knowing Creator. And when we do that, we need to see things as being far more, in this case, for example, of just being two nations that are you know, worried about geopolitical concerns and everything else, and they're doing what they have to do to secure their place and their position. So here's what I want to do for the few minutes remaining. Let's look at our individual lives 
just our households, okay, our personal lives but and, and restricted to our households, let's look at things through the paradigm or the grid of a biblical worldview. What are the major disruptions, and I'm talking about right now, today, as you're sitting here, what are the major disruptions in your household? And I'm talking about they may be personal, financial, marital, familial, social, medical, psychological, and certainly not limited to just those. What are the major disruptions in your life and in your household? Are you ever, are you ever inclined to review your household in such a way where you look at the seemingly obvious causes of routine disruptions forgetting that we still live under the watchful eye of a very loving God who is involved up close and personal in our households, whether we realize it or not. Through what I'm going to call naturalistic lenses, meaning just seeing the world as, you know, kind of for what it is, forget again all the spiritual stuff and everything else. Through naturalistic glasses, if you will, we can picture the leaders of Israel getting together and saying, look, the Philistines are starting to make me a little nervous. I think they're up to something. We better prepare our army. Through naturalistic lenses, we can picture the Philistines saying, hmm, gosh, we have a medical issue on our hands. We have a national epidemic. How do we contain it? Both of those views and the assessments of the people in that time, it makes perfect sense. But with a biblical paradigm, we are privy to behind the scenes, showing us that all of it had one core cause. The nations were not right with God. They were not right with God personally they were not right with god culturally and they were not right with god nationally so through the lens now of divine through god's lenses through divine glasses the jews didn't have a diplomatic crisis like they thought and the philistines didn't have a health crisis like they thought they both had spiritual crises. And it's no different. It is no different today. And I would say especially to those of the household of faith, both the real and the posers. What happened on September 11th, 2001 and continues to this day globally, was not simply a handful of crazed men empowered by their religious beliefs seeking revenge or conversion of an entire world. Hello. Thank you. It was the beginning... It was the beginning in earnest of a global campaign orchestrated not by the Pentaveret, not by the Bilderbergers, 
Some of you are going like, the who's the what? Conspiracy garbage. But orchestrated by God Almighty to gather a disinterested world and a distracted, I'm being kind, church unto himself before the end of the end comes. Truly, my opinion only. Samuel happens to be God's appointed man for the hour, and he knows what to do. He calls the people who wear God's name to repentance. In God's mercy and grace, verses 4 through 6, the sons of Samuel... Uh, sorry, the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtaroth and served the Lord alone. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. They gathered to Mizpah, and they drew water, and they poured it out before the Lord, and they fasted on that day, and they said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. Again, while this is Old Testament, it is nothing different from what Jesus said to his disciples. Matthew sixteen twenty four. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. All of God's promises and I mean all, comprehensively, of God's promises to his, to his people are always intact. But their fulfillment and the personal benefit or experience of them are in fact contingent on the loving Lord your God, on loving the Lord your God with all your heart. This is how Joshua concludes that book and relatively successful time in the history of Israel because of the faithfulness of Joshua. He finishes by saying, So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and they lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Here it is. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. I truly believe that there is a house cleaning going on, divinely orchestrated, a house cleaning, because the scriptures tell us that judgment will begin with the household of God, not with they, them, and those, not with the Philistines, but with the household of God. And I do not think it coincidental, though it may be. I've been praying for probably two decades at least, maybe more. For a certain church in town, actually several churches in town, 
that teach a counterfeit God and a counterfeit gospel and lead people astray, worse, leading them to hell, making them feel great about it. And that church is defunct. It's dead. It is technically gone. And they are looking for people to rent the building and rent spaces in it and everything else. Hallelujah. Now, we should be chagrined and we should take a good look at ourselves. Because I assure you, people of faith, evangelical free church, I believe there is a house cleaning taking place in this church too. After years and years of growth and growth and growth and growth, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, actually not a sudden, just kind of a piece at a time, It eats my socks. I'm not even sure what that means. <laughs> but it's not good. And I assure you that I am as exercised about my own personal walk with the Lord as I am with yours. <laughs> If you want unicorns and glitter and rainbows and pie, go to the church that used to be a church on Eustis Parkway. May it only increase. Let me have you stand. Father in heaven, it is of your mercies that none of us are consumed. For your compassions are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O God. Lord, cause us to be exercised, to be troubled and burdened by the slackness of our walk with you and repent. In Jesus' name, amen. Men, if you would, if you wouldn't mind, just kind of